Welcome to SCI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emerging literature spanning the full spectrum of SCI research, from discovery to clinical application. You're listening to a Community Perspectives episode with Dr. Aaron Phillips. I'm David. And I'm Marla, and today we'll be discussing the paper titled Neuroprosthetic Barrel Reflex Controls Hemodynamics After Spinal Cord Injury, which was published in Nature in January 2021. This paper was recommended to us by Asia's Education Committee, and our guest today is Dr. Aaron Phillips. Dr. Phillips is an assistant professor at the University of Calgary Departments of Physiology and Pharmacology, Clinical Neurosciences, and Cardiac Sciences. Welcome, Dr. Phillips. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. And this is such a great paper, um, super applicable to a lot of our listeners, uh, either living with spinal cord injury or family members, caregivers. We've had a lot of really good discussions on this uh, podcast about the effects of spinal cord injury on the autonomic nervous system and how it can, can affect your blood pressure. Can you um, talk a little bit about things that you hope the SCI community could maybe understand from reading your paper about how spinal cord injuries can affect their blood pressure and how that might affect their daily function and, you know, their time in rehab. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thanks, Marla. So the fundamental point, I think that's important to take, there's a, there's a few. The first one is that your blood pressure is controlled by your brain and the fibers, the pathways that are responsible for controlling blood pressure travel through your spinal cord. And when you have a spinal cord injury, just like walking again, just like moving your arms and hands, the brain can no longer control blood pressure. Now, blood pressure has been known for 50 years, 60 years to be the number one risk factor for cardiovascular disease, dysregulated blood pressure. And it's really important to get an idea of what your blood pressure levels are when you have a spinal cord injury, just like it's important to keep an eye on your hand function, your uh, leg function, your bladder function, knowing what your blood pressure control is really important to understand. Um, the second one is that we're working for you. We are trying, we've partnered with Onward Medical. It's successfully had a big fundraise and they have a huge bunch of backers from the communities, uh, Christopher Dana Reeve Foundation, for example, and they are working to get this therapy indicated for people with spinal cord injury so that there's a new option available. Um, you know, there's a couple drugs that are used to treat your blood pressure. Currently, we know they don't work perfectly, right? They work slow and they're not really matched up with the time scales of how labile blood pressure is after spinal cord injury. And this therapy is suited to work quick and effectively. And we're working hard um, with community support to bring this towards a new therapy that's that's available. Love hearing that, Dr. Phillips. So you make the connection here between blood pressure and cardiovascular disease and all my able-bodied buddies, you know, I hear they got high blood pressure and I've heard that's bad for cardiovascular disease. But I thought like with people with cervical spinal cord injuries, it's that their blood pressure is too low. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is what we think. Right. And I mean, David, thanks for highlighting that. I mean, there's some, there's some great research that's been around for a long time and kind of not been taken up just yet. It's a huge groups of the population, which means we have faith in it. And it shows, not in spinal cord injured folks, but it shows that blood pressure almost certainly has what's called an inverted U-shape. So high is bad and low is bad. 
High is bad for certain things, you know, heart disease, stroke. Low is bad for similar things, still heart disease, stroke, but also is a primary reason people feel lightheaded, dizzy, kind of brain fog is how a lot of people describe it, even in the clinical setting. So we've been taking steps forward. We have a couple papers, but we have more research coming that shows very conclusively that even in spinal cord injured folks, low blood pressure is a significant issue that is associated with heart disease, which is a number one cause of death after spinal cord injury. So just, you know, another thing to keep in mind and uh, be aware of um, that low blood pressure is, uh, is not the, the goal here. You want to have your optimal blood pressure for health. Can you talk a little bit about what exactly is epidural stimulation, how it works, what someone would expect with one of these devices, and just kind of the basics of kind of how it would affect somebody in the day-to-day? Yeah. So similar to other systems, you know, the spinal cord below the level of injury, if if it's complete or maybe partially injured, there's fibers that are dormant. And then after complete injury, they're quite dormant. So they're still functional. They're still there. They're just not able to get the brain's command of when to turn on and what to turn on. So epidural stimulation is an approach that stimulates kind of like the pacemaker for the heart, right? It stimulates um, not the heart, but it stimulates the spinal cord. And it turned because neurons actually in the spinal cord is made up of neurons, neurons use electricity providing electrical current into the spinal cord can reawaken those dormant neurons. And we found a new area that controls blood pressure. And we found that when you stimulate electrically, the neurons in that area, they reawaken the blood pressure control that you may have lost after spinal cord injury. So blood pressure optimization is the goal, not just more or less. And you're saying that there's a little device that can get installed in someone's spine that can help them with that. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's uh, you can, you can install it right on the spine. It can be in there for years, a decade, and it can reawaken the, the fibers, the pathways, the spinal cord, uh, particularly those areas that can optimize your blood pressure for you. Yeah, and Dr. Phillips, I know you published this beautiful paper demonstrating that your group has done this, but if I hear this for the first time, I have this barrage of questions like, how do I charge it? Will the TV remote turn it on on accident? Do I have an app that lets me control it? Will it go off in the metal detector when I am going through the airport? Can I get it wet? Can you talk a little just about the practical components here? Yeah, yeah. There's a variety of different, so there's a variety of different hardware that's that could be used. Uh, what we're working towards is a, it has to be either charged or there's another device that can go a long time without charging, but it's a little bit less precise, but it does need electrical current. So most often it does need to be charged. Usually you would charge it when you're, you know, relaxing in the evening to prepare for the next day or maybe every couple of days. It's pretty rapid. It's implanted in your body, so you can get it wet. Right now you can control it with People that have it and want to control it at home can turn it on and off and increase the intensity and things like that with a kind of almost like a cell phone type of size device. Um, We're working on it also being able to be controlled by a smartphone, by a kind of iPhone idea. I think those are kind of the key elements. So I'm good for the airport. 
airport i actually don't know the answer i assume yes i have not heard anything about that you're probably going to get flagged and have to explain that you've got some hardware it's kind of like a pacemaker like a similar thing it might get might not go off you might have to have a discussion with your tsa agent before uh, you go through the scanner <laughs> yeah good actionable follow-up from this uh, you could administer little like certificates of uh you know implant to your participants here yeah, i love um, that <laughs> it'll get them through the, the tsa okay great now that we got those out of the way so this is this is really we're talking about the future here this is bioelectronic medicine and it's exciting because i hear a lot of people talking about this but i think we need to start to to be specific when we talk about spinal cord stimulators so some are going to be outside the spine some are going to be inside they're going to be in different locations and they're going to be targeting different functions so can you talk about what you did in this study to make it so that this stimulator was in a certain place to get a certain response yeah yeah lot to unpack there i think so that we know that the spine is not consistent throughout the entire structure. We know that the spinal cord, just like the higher up a given person's injury might be, there's different types of functions that are lost. And the reason why that is, is because each area of the spinal cord does something a little different and is responsible for slightly different things. So most of the fibers in your spinal cord that control your unconscious stuff, unconscious bodily functions is in the middle of the spine. And we discovered a very precise area that underlies blood pressure control. We did that in animal models by uh, labeling the actual neurons, the actual fibers that go out to blood vessels. And we did it another way where we used epidural stimulation in a very precise manner and stimulated all the areas of the spinal cord and figured out that that was actually, even though they were projecting out to blood vessels, we then confirmed that they were able to elevate blood pressure. I think that answers most of your questions there, Dave. Sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, it's I, the, the paper is interesting because that figure, figure two, it's like four years of work and, you know, just skim over it. And that's, that's some people's dedication over many years. So you are working for us, Dr. Phillips. Best, yeah. This is, this is great because I had heard about stimulators for recovering motor function. So one thing that might come up is, hey, I saw that guy, that Italian guy, he's a complete para and he got a stimulator implant. I saw a video he could walk with a walker. And so with this stimulator, you're saying it's going to help with a function that I don't have volitional control over. You mentioned the autonomic nervous system. And you mentioned that you measured different areas of the spine. Your stimulator went in a certain place because you could show that that area was going out to blood vessels. But do you know that the stimulator is not also turning on other things in my abdomen as well as the blood vessels, other things I don't have control over? Is it going to change my bowel program? Does it make some hormones come out of my adrenal glands? Yeah. So this device and no no technology available yet is as specific as we are going to be in 30 years from now. The reality is it works for blood pressure, but it does have some effect on the contraction of your abdominal muscles. Some People like that because it makes them a little bit more upright. We've seen some uh, Greg Wars work that can, you know, row and be more upright in their chair, maybe be a little bit more ergonomic when they move around. Some people feel that it's maybe a little bit uh, uncomfortable in some cases, more like it just feels like a vibration. 
and we're in the participant in our trial, the first one, that's actually, we chose some of the settings so that we avoided that because it was uncomfortable a little bit for him. He liked the contraction feeling, but more control, didn't like a feeling of vibration. So we were able to change the settings a little bit where we mitigated that. And he, he still uses it years and years and years later with those settings. So there, we do see effects on bowel routine. We don't understand why a lot more research needs to go into that. People's bowel routines are, we've published on this, but I mean, it's probably one of the most amazing findings that people's bowel routines are getting reduced, right? Like quite a bit. And we don't know why a lot more work needs to go into why that's happening. Is it just because the abdomen is, is contracted and it's like a more upright position during the day? It allows for, for motion time or uh, sorry, bowel motility time to be reduced. We don't know. Maybe there's something going on directly affecting the bowels. Um, we don't know. There's a lot more work to do on this. Actually, Asia put on a American Spinal Injury Association put on in Maui a few years ago, a session where they brought folks from around the world that have it implanted with this. And one person from the audience asked a good question. And they were like, would you, so we've talked about pros and cons and it was focused on the potential side effects. And someone asked, would you ever want the device taken out? And I remember vividly the, the panel all looked at each other and kind of giggled and said, no. So I, I I still get the feeling that it's far more pros than cons and that there's uh, not anywhere near the feeling that uh, the fact that we don't know everything about it just yet is inhibiting people from from liking it. Yeah, and I can see in your paper that some of the details about the electrical stimulation are changed to target the blood pressure, which is great. So... Do you think you could maybe tune the device to do different things? We can. Um, it's a combination of things, though, too, right? Like we can stimulate the segments. We know enough about the mechanism to stimulate the segments and activate the, the spine, the particular regions of the spine. It's trickier with current technology to, at the same time, activate and inhibit specific functions. So, like, it's very tricky right now to turn on stimulation in the thoracic area and not get, or in the hotspot, the, the, the area that we found for blood pressure, not get some abdominal activity. We're just not able to precisely target a specific subset of neurons because it's complicated in there. Um, we're working towards that in my lab, understanding the profiles and how to get there, uh, the profiles of the spinal cord and the neurons in there. But, you know, right now we're not able to, uh, to precisely turn on one specific function and then, and then turn it off. It's just not I don't know that it'll be even possible with electrical stim. It might be some futuristic, you know, type of stimulation that's very precise. I have seen some work with stimulators being used for other functions, functions that people with spinal cord injuries care about, like stimulators being used for sexual function. So maybe it would be, hey, Alexa, it's Valentine's Day, and my stimulator goes on in a different way. Right? Yeah, yeah. Do you see that coming? I do. I do. And I don't have a doubt it's getting there. I mean, and in, in, in my group, we're trying to understand the specific neurons in the spinal cord that control blood pressure, the specific types of neurons that may be predisposed to bladder sexual function. And we're trying to develop approaches for just activating and inactivating those subtype. Now, it, this requires a lot of uh, precision, but, you know, there's medical therapies that are futuristic that 
are starting to get prime time. Like people um, are injecting light channel options for people that have lost their vision now and deploying that technique for recovering vision. So I think we're getting there, um, but this is future tech. And I don't think we should kind of rely on these things right now. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about, you know, if a person has a new spinal cord injury and, you know, they're reading your paper or they've heard about this type of technology, you know, who might be a good candidate for that, how they might be able to get involved, you know, should they be looking at this early when they're still in the hospital, when they're still in rehabilitation? Is this more of something that's, you know, after you're home and things settle down, kind of the logistical aspects of everything? Yeah. You know, I don't want to overstate too much because there's some stuff we don't know. And we don't, you know, theoretically, we don't know this. So caveat, we don't know. Theoretically, it would be pretty beneficial to have something like this implanted soon after injury because the injury is still going through kind of a period where it's trying to heal itself. There is some capacity for some neuro recovery in that early phase. And we know that electrical stimulation in the spinal cord may promote some of that and make it better. Not, not a cure, but improve it slightly. So there, there probably is that. Now, do we know that? We're doing animal research now to understand those exact questions. Do you want this early? Do you want it late? What happens if you stop it later? Um, do you need it forever? Does it have beneficial effects that are maintained? We're trying to understand all of that. And I mean, those are coming from people just like you guys, clinicians that are asking us. They they like the finding and they're like, what do, what do I actually need to tell my patients about whether or not this can work for them in their specific time since injury and how long they'd have to have it in? So we don't know yet, but I give you my best guess. And with respect to the paper you published, it looks like the animals had the stimulator in pretty quick after the injury right yeah they they well we did we did everything in those guys so we did we didn't look at plasticity but we did it early and late after injury and we know it works for increasing blood pressure and can stabilize blood pressure both early and late after injury now the long-term effects on plasticity we know it works for a long period of time also after stimulation but we haven't answered the question about whether it promotes benefits if you get it in early. We haven't answered that question yet in a published paper. We're working on that in the lab. That's great because I know people going through rehab, especially acute and then into inpatient, just being able to tolerate upright sitting from an orthostatic standpoint is prohibitive. Until you can keep your blood pressure up and not get real dizzy, you can't go and start your rehab. So real big push to get this in early but that's got to be a regulatory nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from a research standpoint, there's folks interested in this. Uh, so we we've been on this uh, U.S. military DARPA contract for a while, and um, there's been um, I'll name drop here, but Brian Kwan has been, and he works a lot on that acute period of spinal cord injury hemodynamics during that period, and he's really interested in. Uh, clinically testing this in the acute setting and seeing if it can help with uh, neural recovery by stabilizing blood pressure. Absolutely. That's great. But it's most likely that someone out there will, the first people who are going to their healthcare professionals and requesting this treatment will have had a spinal cord injury for some time. 
And so if that's the case, can you talk a little bit right now about if these stimulators will interfere with any of the other treatments that they currently have, will it exclude them from getting certain treatments? How does this interact with the pharmacopoeia and all the current devices that people with spinal cord injuries already use? We, we know from the epidural space, the safety profile from the motor function space, um, we know the safety profile and it's considered safe for, for epidural, epidural stimulation is considered safe from the systematic reviews and analysis of big population data for pain. Specific to autonomic dysfunction, there haven't been, we did one paper on safety and also found that it was quite well tolerated and safe, but Probably there's more work on that that will come out as more and more people are implanted will understand safety even more. Interactions with other elements, I imagine it's going to be identical to pacemaker, for example, where you know there might be some contraindications that probably will with certain types of imaging, like MRIs, for example, specifically of the area that the stimulator is in. Those are my main points on, on that because there, there is still a little bit more to do on that. All I know is that from the thousands of people in the world with epidural stimulators and for pain, it's, uh, it's considered safe. So, you know, if I'm a person living with a spinal cord injury or a caregiver or loved one, and I'm reading through your paper, first of all, more power to you, because, you know, I had a, I had a hard time reading through this paper uh, and it's, you know, my area of expertise, but can you tell us what would you hope you know, somebody in that population would gain from reading your paper and anything, any takeaway points you would want them to have? The takeaway points are that, like I said, we're, we're working hard on a solution. Uh, we don't just want our findings. We spent five, really, this is a 10-year journey, but five years on this paper alone, figuring out how this works, developing it and showing a proof of concept. We don't want these findings to just stay in the lab. And we're now working um, to, to, to really try and find a solution and a medical solution that's available for your primary care provider to prescribe to you to solve your blood pressure issues after spinal cord injury. Thank you so much, Dr. Phillips. We love that you're working for us. Thanks so much. We're trying our best. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCI Science Perspectives, brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. The paper discussed in this episode was chosen based on the recommendation of Asia's Education Committee. This podcast is made possible by the leadership of Dr. Suzanne Groh, your producer hosts, David McMillan, that's me, and Marla Petriello, our editor, Abby Fox, production assistant, James Concepcion, and Asia's front office. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please contact us at sciperspectivespodcast at gmail.com.